Good morning, everybody, and welcome to TLC Live today at noon. And welcome, Orlando. How are you? You are on assignment today. You're not in the studio, but here you go. I'm busy today, but anyway, uh, this is an exciting show because we want to dedicate the entire show uh, to talk about the COVID situation. As you know, the pandemic started, I suppose, well over a year ago, maybe uh, a year and a half ago. And um, it's it's been a, as they call it, a pandemic. It's a global event, Andrea. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, even though we do like to talk politics on, the sh on this show, we're not going to politicize the pandemic. We're not going to politicize the science. We are going to try to share facts with our viewers in hopes that we can educate our viewers and the public in general about COVID, about the vaccines, about the variants, about the, uh, you know, the incidences across the country. So we have a real special guest that we're real honored to have him because, boy, he's hard to get a hold of, but uh, we're so grateful that he's given us a little bit of his time. And I'm going to let Andrea introduce our special guest. Yes, Orlando, definitely after a year and a half of this global pandemic, we still have more questions than answers. And that's why we invite you to today Dr. Luis Ostrowski. He is the Chief of Infections Disease at McGovern Medical School at UT Health Houston. And also he is a professor of medicine and epidemiology and the vice chair of medicine of healthcare quality among and many, many, many other titles that does Dr. Ostrowski has. So we are really um, delighted and honored to have his time today from one, for one hour talking about not only COVID-19 that started a year and a half, but also the variant that we're seeing this year and the vaccine that is being, um, it's having a lot of, you know, questions and people are, some people are for it, some people are not for it. So people are, has a lot of questions. And now, especially that apparently Delta, it's uh, affecting or impact more people, younger people and kids. And we'll talk about, about the vaccination for kids also, doctor, because um, we're back to school. And a lot of parents are debating, should I take my kid or my, my children's to, um, to get the vaccine? So that's why um, we have Dr. Ostrowski today. Doctor, good morning or good afternoon already. And thank you so much for your time. Good afternoon. And it's a pleasure to be here today. Buenas tardes a todos. And uh, I'm very happy to talk about the science uh, of COVID-19, uh, how to prevent it, how to manage it. And I'm very happy to be here today. So, Dr. Ostrowski, thank you. I will remind everybody that um, our viewers that Dr. Ostrowski was with us way back when this pandemic started about a year and a half ago. We did a teletown hall with over 20,000 Texans tuning in. And Dr. Ostrowski was kind enough to take live calls uh, and answering questions at the beginning of this pandemic. And we're delighted to have you back, Dr. Ostrowski, so that you can help clarify uh, from a scientific perspective, from a medical perspective, uh, being the professional that you are, about some of the misunderstandings. Um, let's begin at the very basic uh, uh, and go back. Uh, when, when the virus first uh, hit in Wuhan and started spreading globally, um, one of the first recommendations that was made by the scientific community was masks. 
Masks have become very controversial. Uh, many people say they work. Some people say they don't work. Some people that say they don't work agree, but it helps, uh, you know, at the time, if you recall, we were trying to flatten the curve, right? Because so many people were rushing to the hospital that our hospitals were getting full. And so the basic question is, do masks still work? Uh, does the scientific community recommend them? And how long do we have to wear masks, Dr. Ostrowski? Thank you very much for that question. Um, as you well mentioned, masks have become controversial, political to a certain degree. But I want to really assure you and all your viewers that on the scientific side, one of the very least controversial things is the use of masks. Masks work very, very well doing two things. They actually contain the secretions uh, for somebody who's sick with COVID in their own space, so they're not spreading out. And we know that this virus spreads out by aerosols. And they work to a certain extent as well in protecting the person that's wearing them from getting infected from somebody else. So it's kind of a dual benefit for wearing masks. They contain secretions for anybody who is sick, whether they know it or not. And we know that this virus can transmit in asymptomatic people, people without symptoms, and they protect the person wearing them from others as well. So again, um, a friend of mine who's also an infectious diseases doctor said in a town hall the other day that, you know, uh, us infectious diseases doctors almost uh, argue on a daily basis about things like, should I give this antibiotic or that antibiotic? Should I give it for seven days or 14 days or, you know, six weeks? Uh, should I do this or that in the hospital to prevent infections? But the one thing every single infectious diseases doctor out there agrees on is that masks work they changed dramatically the way COVID was spreading early on in the pandemic. We saw it in the hospitals uh, where, you know, our staff was getting infected right and left when dealing with COVID-19 patients and even with other staff members. And the moment we introduced masking in the hospitals, the epidemiology changed. We stopped seeing transmission. And this happens in the community as well. The moment we introduce masking as a national sort of mitigation measure, we flatten the curve. And what we're seeing right now is uh, a mixture of two things. We are seeing Delta, which is a lot more infectious, and we are seeing a lot of unmasking and no mitigation. So right now the virus is spreading unchecked in our community. So again, um, one of the big takeaways from today is that from a scientific standpoint, mask are not controversial at all. They work and it is one of our tools, one of the many tools that we have to get, of, get us out of this pandemic. Now, I wanna follow up uh, to ask, uh, you talked about variants and you're talking about how the Delta variant is certainly more virulent. In other words, it spreads more easily. And uh, so there is a contributing factor that not only are we maskless, but now we have a more infectious disease. But my question to you is because, you know, me as a lay person, I've been doing some research uh, and uh, they're saying that the Delta variant peaked relatively quickly in India and also in Great Britain. Uh, from, from, from the data that you're seeing, Dr. Ostrowski, 
Is there a possibility that the Delta variant is starting to peak or will peak sometime soon in the United States or at least in Texas? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Again, uh, we know that Delta is a variant that is, as you well said, more infectious. It transmits easier from person to person. Uh, what happens is that as a lower amount of virus is more efficient in infecting people. And when people get infected, they have really, really high viral loads. So they become highly infectious. Um, so again, most of the peak that we're seeing currently is related to two factors, Delta and no mitigation measures, no masking, no spacing, no hand hygiene. And we need the, these two things to be working to get rid of this. Um, as far as peaking goes, we have early indications um, very cautiously optimistic that we're starting to see at least a flattening of the curve. So it's not longer going up uh, the numbers here in Houston and in, in Texas. They're kind of stable. Uh, I always like to say stable at 100 miles an hour, which is not good. Um, but there are some models that are predicting uh, that we're going to start going down in the next couple of weeks. And then some models, again, that are sort of starting to take into account going back to school as a mode of transmission that have us going down and then going back up uh, towards the end of September. So, again, it's not a license to sort of say, oh, we're going down so we can go back to normal. No, we need to contain this virus by doing our mitigation measures, the masking, hand hygiene, uh, social distancing, Vaccinating is, is super important at, at this point. We're going to talk about it later. Um, but uh, we do have some very early indicators that we may be peaking. Yeah, you were talking uh, about uh, back to school. Andrea, Andrea, hang on just a second. And I'm going to let you, because I'm going to follow this up. Uh, uh, that, that's good to hear that you think the, the Delta variant, uh, it, there are indications it's starting to peak. However, there's been several news reports, Dr. Ostrowski, uh, that there are uh, several other variants now starting to be discovered. I think the South Africa, they labeled it a C.1.2. And then uh, apparently, according to Forbes, there's a B.1.621. Uh, and so here's my question. Are we going to be living with this and the variants like the flu constantly? I mean, I know parents, people are worried. You know, the elderly are worried. I'm worried. H how long do you think COVID's going to be around? This, this, is, this is like horrific. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we are watching very carefully the emergence of other variants, um, particularly the C12, which is a variant from South Africa that is so far the most kind of mutated variant. Um, with concern that it may evade some of the vaccines, antibodies, and other measures that we have for it. At this point, WHO is labeling it a variant of concern. Uh, so it's something we need to watch, not a variant of high consequence, which is the other term for things that are really, really worrisome. Uh, but again, this reminds you and reminds our viewers that if we don't do something together, intentional, in concert to take care of COVID, it's just going to keep circulating over and over and over and over in the communities. And it's going to do what viruses do, which is mutate. And eventually, we're going to end up with a mutation that is 
going to completely escape our vaccines, completely escape the monoclonal antibodies that we use for treatment right now, uh, completely escape medication that we have for the virus. So uh, the answer to your question is, it's up to us. It's up to us whether we're going to live with COVID or not. Uh, if we all work together, all vaccinate, all mask for a while, all get tested when we have symptoms and stay home, we're going to get rid of this. If we don't work together, this is just going to be a perpetual nightmare for all of us. Doctor, we're back to school. You were mentioning earlier, um, we're back to school and it's been very controversial uh, as, as kids are back to school that uh, if the school district should, um, you know, tell the kids that they need to, it's mandatory to wear a mask or not. And many parents don't want their kids to wear the mask. And uh, I have my kids, for example, in their school is mandatory to wear school and they're in private school. But you have the kids also saying like, mom, I mean, it's hard to breathe. It's, it's so hard to, to be all day long at class and wearing the mask. So what can we tell this young generation and the parents that now that we're back to school and we're dealing again with different variants of COVID? Yes, so uh, the schools are a very difficult topic for all of us because we all want to go back to normal. We want our kids to play and have recess and do sports and drama and sleepovers and everything. But again, we need to learn from our mistakes. And our mistakes have been that if we let go too soon of the mitigation measures, we're going to have transmission. And we need to learn that if we don't vaccinate those that are eligible, we're going to have transmission and we're going to get people getting sicker. So um, difficult, difficult topic. But what has proven to stop transmission in schools is masking, it's hand hygiene, it's the social distancing. And if we go back to school and we're not doing the things and expect a different outcome, we're just wasting our time. So at this point, best practices for schools are really gonna be masking, social distancing, and hand hygiene. And these three things will allow us to be in school in person, which is very important and will allow us to operate safely for the kids and for the, the staff in the school. We always forget about staff. There's, you know, teachers that are immunocompromised and pregnant, and uh, we need to think about them as well. So, again, it's, it's a shame that it has become political, it has become ideological, but we need to stick to the science. And the science is that mask work, hand hygiene works, spacing and ventilation work in schools and with these tools we can safely be in person in school and get as close to normal for our kids as possible so uh, it, it's just interesting that we see masking as as, as an enemy as a, sort of a method to interfere with social interaction and all but it's actually the tool that's gonna get us where we need to be which is in school in person with our friends um, so I really want to sort of bring down the point that, that masking is not the enemy. Masking is what's going to get us back to normal. And we need to embracing, again, not controversial. There's very clear studies out there that show that by masking in school, you are able to operate safely. By not masking in school, we, we saw a, 
a paper last week where a kindergarten teacher was teaching. She took off her mask. Uh, she was not vaccinated either. And she infected 50% of the class, so these kids in the school. So um, we need masks to operate schools safely. Um, the other thing is vaccination. Again, there's a lot of reluctance uh, to vaccinate kids. Uh, we are seeing definitely, very clearly, an increasing number of kids getting sick with COVID. Initially in the pandemic, we thought, you know, that kids don't get sick that often. And we thought that if they got sick, they would not get very sick to land up in the hospital. But with Delta, this is changing. And with no mitigation, this is changing. We are seeing record numbers in pediatric hospitals um, here in the Houston area and throughout the United States. We are seeing kids that are different from the kids we saw early in the pandemic. Early uh, in the pandemic, we saw mostly uh, unfortunate children with comorbidities, with underlying diseases, with congenital problems, getting COVID and, and unfortunately passing away from it. Uh, the pattern has changed. We're seeing teenagers, healthy teenagers getting COVID. We're seeing babies getting COVID. We heard about the first fatality in a pediatric patient in Houston last week uh, who had no comorbidities. So um, I really want to stress out that this is not, you know, an option. We need to vaccinate our kids if we want to keep them safe. And uh, just, you know, for perspective, you know, um, the first thing I did when the vaccines were approved for 12 and older was to vaccinate my daughter, who's um, in that age range. And I got my younger kids in a clinical trial so that they would be able to access the vaccine when they were younger. So uh, I feel that the vaccines are safe enough that I did it for my own kids. If that doesn't speak volumes, I think um, nothing would. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ostrowski, um, as you're talking now about the vaccine, we have comments and we have one question from our viewers, like if it's a side effect, especially in in, in kids or, or in, in people under 18. Mm -hmm. Yes, so <clears throat> as with any medication, there's always the probability of having a, an allergic reaction. Uh, that is with any medication, any vaccine. This severe allergic reactions are very, very rare and they're manageable. And that's why they observe you for about 15 minutes after you get your, your shot. And we have noticed, uh, you know, with this vaccine rollout, which has been very highly scrutinized that um, particularly for the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccines, which are the ones that we're gonna be using in, in kids, there's a slight increase in the risk of heart inflammation. Uh, the CDC and the FDA have analyzed this in, in detail. This usually happens in younger male kids. It's self-limited, which means that it's mild and it results on its own. And what we have seen uh, from data from Israel, which is a country that keeps very good track of vaccination data, is that the incidence of this rare side effect is much lower than the incidence of this same side effect if you were to catch COVID. So again, the risk benefit and every everything in life is risk benefit, right? The risk benefit points towards the risk of getting the vaccine are lower than the benefit you would get from getting the vaccine and avoiding COVID and those same complications we're concerned about. So um, 
from CDC, from FDA, from every pediatrician out there, we're recommending to vaccinate our kids because these rare side effects are minimal compared to what can happen to somebody that gets COVID. People want you to comment also about uh, people that already got the vaccine. They didn't have COVID before, and now they're getting COVID. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we are uh, unfortunately seeing some what we call breakthrough infections. These are infections that happen in fully vaccinated people. And with Delta, we're seeing a higher incidence of these breakthrough infections that we had seen earlier when we started to vaccinate. The good news is that these infections happen to be very mild for the most part. And although, you know, we are seeing some people that get symptomatic, they're not landing in the hospital. They're not dying from this infection. Again, for perspective, in Houston hospitals right now, 99% of people who are in the hospital with COVID in the ICU are people who are not vaccinated. And it's incredibly rare somebody, to see somebody who's fully vaccinated in the hospital at this point. So the vaccines are doing their job, which is to prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and deaths. That's not a concern for the current vaccines. Another question, what about a natural immunity? We're learning a lot about natural immunity. So far, uh, for the most part, what we've learned is that natural immunity will protect you uh, reliably for about three months. And after three months, the antibodies start dropping, those that you acquire from natural immunity. Uh, some people have longer lasting antibodies. They last for a lot longer. But in average, most people start dropping their natural immunity antibodies after three months. Therefore, the recommendation is that even if you had COVID, it's very important to still get vaccinated because the vaccine creates antibodies that last a lot longer. And they're also a lot broader. They protect you against more variants than the ones that you acquire from natural immunity. So meaning if somebody got COVID and then get the vaccine, so for how long, what is the period that that person will be immunity? That got COVID and then they get vaccinated, that's actually a really good situation. We learned that people that got COVID first and then got vaccinated usually have higher antibody levels and long, longer lasting than people that never had COVID and got vaccinated. So again, another sort of reminder of the importance of getting vaccinated even if you had COVID, that gives you an extra level of protection. I have a question, Dr. Ostrowski. Um, the, uh, I think there's some confusion as to how vaccines work. For example, you know, on social media, for example, people say, we didn't have to convince the public to get the polio shot. And, and so why do some diseases only require one shot, uh, maybe a booster 10 years later if you're young and that's it, uh, and then others require, uh, you know, constant, uh, in, in other words, you know, there's been a, there, for many years, there's been a talk about a universal flu shot, right? A, a shot that takes care of all the flu viruses uh, and all the variants. Is that where science is headed so that we have one uh, COVID vaccine that hopefully will address all known variants so we can put a damper on this? Yes, so that, that's a great question. Uh, there's many different ways to make vaccines. The traditional ways have been up to now, uh, 
<clears throat> either taking the virus itself, inactivating it with some substance, and then injecting it so that the body would recognize it, but the virus wouldn't be able to reproduce and cause an infection in the person getting it, or maybe stunting the virus a little bit and basically injecting a live virus and uh, not allowing it to reproduce too much, but allowing the body to recognize it, or just breaking the virus apart and taking the proteins or parts of the virus, again, injecting them into the body, and the body learns to recognize them. Those were sort of the traditional ways to make, make vaccines. This time around, because we don't have the time um, to do all that development process, those are very sort of complicated methods to inactivate viruses, grow them in vats or grow their proteins in vats, etc. We sort of uh, took a hack, a hack which is we used the uh, instructions to make proteins in the virus with our cells to make those proteins and then train our body to recognize those proteins. So it's actually a very clever hack that we're doing with these vaccines. And of course, you know, we're training the body to recognize this particular group of proteins. Um, so far, it seems that this is going to be long lasting and it's going to protect us against multiple variants. So unless the virus changes dramatically in which we'll have to start from scratch. But as far as we know, the current vaccines that we have with a booster to get the antibody levels higher up will protect us against all the variants that are known currently and future variants again. You know, I tell a lot of my friends that uh, worry about the vaccine that uh, we're now, uh, since Pfizer and Moderna sta started the, uh, the test, uh, the, the studies before they were approved by the F Food and Drug Administration, it's been now several years. Uh, and so to me, that says that the millions and millions of shots of vaccinations that have given, been given out by uh, either product, Pfizer or Moderna, and there really haven't been any catastrophic side effects is a good indicator that it's probably safe. Would, would you agree with that sort of assessment? Absolutely. Again, these vaccines did not come out of the the cough, you know, they've been actually being researched for the past 30 years with other infections and other diseases. So I don't know if you know this, for, but for example, Moderna was working before COVID was working on a flu vaccine, uh, like you mentioned, a universal flu vaccine. And they're actually getting to start that trial right now. But anyway, these vaccines have been in research in, 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 in vitro, in the Petri dish, in animals and in humans for uh, over 30 years by now. And since we started the campaign for COVID-19, we have vaccinated nearly 200 million Americans with these vaccines, nearly 5 billion people worldwide. So I want you to think about the just massive amounts of people that have been vaccinated uh, with no or minimal side effects. These are safe and these are effective vaccines. And it's a, a shame all the misinformation that we have out there circulating online and in some media because misinformation kills people. If you're not getting the vaccine because you're misinformed, you are actually a victim uh, of a crime, basically. So uh, we need to stick with the facts and we need to 
sort of follow the science, and the science is that these vaccines have been given to nearly 5 billion people worldwide. They're working pretty well. They're as safe as any vaccine we've ever had before. And they're one of the tools. We've been talking about tools to control this pandemic. This is one of the key tools that we have to get out of this situation. Uh, Dr. Ostrowski, two more questions from our viewers. The first one is, uh, if I got the Moderna uh, vaccine, uh, it doesn't matter what booster I will get. I mean, if I get the booster from Pfizer or vice versa, or how did that works? Um, right now, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control are recommending to get your booster from the same brand or type as you originally got. So if you got Pfizer, you get a Pfizer booster. If you get Moderna, you get a Moderna booster. Um, there's research ongoing to sort of exploring mixing and matching. Early data shows that it's beneficial to mix and match. But for now, we're recommending getting your booster from the same series that you got originally. And the second question Andrea, is... Uh, um, uh, Andrea, would you remind folks that uh, everybody on the show is bilingual. So if we have Spanish speakers that want to ask a question, they can also text those to, to you. Ok, sí. Eh, es, eh, el doctor Ostrowski habla inglés y español, así que si usted eh, prefiere hacer su pregunta en español, con mucho gusto la vamos a leer y el doctor la va a responder. Este show es bilingüe, normalmente lo hacemos la mayoría en inglés, pero casi siempre tenemos eh, invitados que hablan los dos idiomas. En este caso, el, do el doctor Ostrowski habla inglés y español, así que bienvenidas también las preguntas en español. Eh, doctor Ostrowski, la segunda pregunta, the second question is... Um, At the beginning of the of the vaccination, you know, people were getting the, the first shot and many people and, and I was reading on the news, many people didn't get the second one because the the side effects or let's not call it the side effect. But, you know, after the, the first shot, people get weak and people get a little bit sick or fever and things like that. And people were waiting like two or three months or sometimes they didn't even go back to get the second shot. Um, what is the protocol or, or what is um, what is the saying? Like, okay, they were saying you get the first shot and in 21 days you get the second one. What if people didn't get in the 21 days after or didn't get, uh, they probably got it two or three months later? Very well. So what we recommend is to always follow the schedule. So that's 21 days for Pfizer, 28 days for Moderna. And if you miss that mark, then getting it as soon as possible. As it turns out, you know, uh, people who miss their 21 day or 28 day uh, shot, maybe in a little bit of luck, there's some data from the UK where they were on purpose spacing vaccines three months out. There's some data that shows that maybe spacing them out a little bit more may be beneficial. So uh, bottom line is if you miss your second shot, Just get the second shot done as soon as possible. Uh, there's no time limit to restart the series. Just get it done as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, as another question, those who haven't been vaccinated haven't um, got it because we don't want it? Oh, because, okay, hold on. It's like a confusion. Well, while, while Andrea is figuring that question out, Dr. Ostrowski, you talked about the natural immunity versus the a man-made immunity via uh, the vaccination. Uh, you you believe, as the scientific community believes, that the 
uh, natural or acquired immunity having been exposed to the to the to the virus last about three months but there 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 is the possibility there is some data because for example i happen to know folks that have gotten COVID, have not been vaccinated and have been uh their blood samples sent to the lab and they still have antibodies uh well after six months so is it that I guess the question is, do we know that after three months, for a fact, the 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 protection starts to wane, as, as, as you said? Or is there a possibility that because you were exposed uh, and you had COVID, that you could have maybe a pretty high antibody level up to a year, for example? Yeah, so uh, in average, people start dropping their antibody levels after three months, but as you will say, um, some people may have longer um, for a year or more. What we don't know for a fact is what do the antibody levels that you can measure in a commercial lab mean? So again, oh. we don't really know whether an antibody level of 800 or 25 or 600 is what's required to control a, a, a subsequent infection. So we really discourage people from making sort of life decisions based on checking their antibodies because most of the testing we have for antibodies right now is very sort of broad. It just gives you a positive or a negative or a more than 20, less than 20, or more than 800, less than 800. And we right now don't have the cutoffs that we need to say, you're immune when your antibody level is X or Y. Um, what we do know is that there's some people that have gotten infected with the original strain. We call that the ancestral strain right now. And then they got infected again with alpha when, when alpha came by. And now they're getting again delta. And every time it's, it's more sort of difficult for them to recover. So again, um, I know people want to sort of feel that they're naturally immune to this virus and rely on their immune system. But sometimes our immune system needs a little help, and this help is the vaccines. And again, vaccines create longer, longer-lasting um, sort of immunity and broader. It, it's more sort of appropriate to multiple variants. Two more questions: If I got already COVID, I got vaccinated, I I can get COVID again? Unfortunately, yes. We have seen people like that uh, again. For the most part, people that are, had COVID and get vaccinated and get COVID again are going to get a much milder form of the disease. They're not going to end up in the hospital. They're not going to die, most likely. Again, vaccines are working very well to prevent hospitalizations and mortality. And the other question is, as we're, we're hearing about the boost, are these, it will be like a boost every year? Uh, as we're seeing different variants on, of COVID? So that's an area where we need to admit we don't know uh, if we're going to need boosters every year. So far, the data uh, sort of indicates that with each dose you get, you get higher antibody levels and you train your body to respond quicker for the next time and, and the next infection, right? So. At this point, um, the data for the booster is pointing to the fact that we may indeed need at least one booster, one third dose. 
but we we're reluctant to say whether we'll need some more in the future or not. Uh, Dr. Ostrowski, uh, while Andrea is going through questions, uh, I want to ask you: Is this virus a one of the more challenging uh, viruses that you've seen in your medical career, or uh, you know, was Ebola more concerning to you? Is uh, you know uh, the different variants more concerning? I mean, are mosquito-borne illnesses more concerning to you? In other words, on the spectrum of what keeps Dr. Ostrowski up at night, where was this one? Yeah, so uh, that's that's a, actually a really interesting question. Uh, we've been preparing for pandemics um, forever, and as an infectious diseases physician and somebody who works in epidemiology for hospitals, preparing hospitals for this, we've always been sort of drilling about influenza, drilling about Ebola. Uh, when we had influenza H1N1 in 2009, it was a very limited event. It lasted a few months initially, and then it became endemic. And now, you know, we have H1N1 every year. Uh, for Ebola, it's a pathogen of very high consequence where the mortality is, you know, nearly 90% when you get Ebola. Uh, luckily, not as, transmis uh, as transmissible as, as some of the respiratory virus. So uh, with Ebola, you need to be in very close contact with the person having the disease, touching their secretions, etc. But this virus is, is kind of a, a perfect nightmare for us. It's it's a virus that um, is definitely more lethal than influenza. This is not just the flu. It's more lethal than influenza. That is as transmissible or more than the common cold. So this is why this is a challenge. This is a, a more lethal virus that's as easy to transmit as the common cold, nearly as easy, as, as transmissible as, as uh, chickenpox, which is one of the most transmissible viruses. So kind of the perfect storm here. I, I want to hang on quick, Andrea. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I try to explain to people, and I, I can't because I'm a lay person, but I've heard this argument, Dr. Ostrowski. Why worry so much about a, a, a virus that has shown that the survivability, if infected, is well into plus 96%. 96% of the people are greater who are exposed to the virus and have symptoms survive. Yes, there are folks with comorbidities. Yes, there are folks that are elderly and immune, you know, their health is compromised that will unfortunately pass away, not only from COVID, but from the flu or from a mosquito-borne illness, or even from a lung infection like bronchitis when you're older. That, it, it, that the argument is, this is the natural course of humanity. In other words, uh, you know, uh, so so why worry so much about it? Why why is this such a, a big deal in the spectrum of infectious diseases? That's, that's a, a very interesting question. Again, this is a virus that, yes, um, you know, mortality overall, probably less than 10%, uh, which is compared to Ebola, like, like nothing, right? But the problem with this virus is that there was no baseline immunity for this, like we have with influenza, with RSV, some of the other viruses that we've seen before. And all of a sudden, you have a virus that is highly infectious, that is going to 
result just by sheer numbers in large amounts of people dying and a large drain on the healthcare system. So I want you to think of any virus you know, Orlando, that has ever occupied 300 beds daily in the Texas Medical Center. That's what we're seeing now. We, we're seeing over 300 admissions of people that need hospital care, oxygen, medication, ICU care, 300 of those on a daily basis. So just, yes, by sheer volume, it's taking over all of our healthcare resources. It's postponing care for other people that have their heart attacks, their strokes, their cancer that needs surgery. So that's why it's such a big deal. You can die from this. There's unquestionable. And it's not only people with comorbidities, it's healthy people, younger people as well. And it's completely taking over the healthcare system. And I think that's the answer to your question. Okay, thank uh, you. Dr. Ostrowski, uh, flu season is coming and people are asking, now that I got vaccinated from COVID, do I need also the flu shot? Absolutely. So um, COVID and flu are true, true and unrelated. They're separate infections. Both can be very severe. Both can land you in the hospital. And the very worst case scenario is that you have actually both and you can actually end up with the two infections and that's gonna be increasing your risk of mortality dramatically. We also, again, need to be mindful about hospitals. So um, having a COVID epidemic, taking over a large amount of beds and having a simultaneous flu epidemic, taking over a certain amount of beds is gonna sort of be the final blow to our healthcare system. So that's why we're really, really recommending this year more than ever, get your flu shot and get your COVID vaccine. Uh, following up on that, Dr. Ostrowski, last year, the reports uh, from the CDC uh, were that the influenza season was minimal at best. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last time I checked, I was shocked at the sheer drop of influenza cases. Uh, to what do you attribute that? You're absolutely right. We had a historic historically low flu season last year. As you well mentioned, looking at those epidemic curves was a total shock. When we see a big peak every year, every year, last year was totally flat. So why did that happen? Because people listen and there was a historical uptick in vaccinations. And that's one of the pieces of evidence that masks do work. People were masking last year at this time when going to work, when going to school. So between vaccination and masking, that helped us sort of have a historically low flu season. And that's proof of what can happen with COVID as well. One of the things that I've always observed, and um, when I traveled to Japan many years ago in Tokyo, I noticed that uh, many of the uh, residents of Tokyo wore masks. There was no epidemics. This was many, many, many years ago. I suspect that you and, and, and uh, your profession, other epidemiologists, have there been studies about societies that do tend to mask up for whatever reason? I mean, I think the, the Japanese uh, do tend to mask up. Uh, ha have there been studies where societies that do mask in public generally as a, as a, as a general rule mm -hmm. 
uh, are, are they healthier, in other words, uh, than we are, let's say? Are their incidence of flus and other viruses and epidemics, uh, not pandemics, but epidemics, lower than, let's say, the Western societies? Yes, there's there's been uh, clear data showing that. Again, it's um, for some of our Asian countries, that's a uh, cultural thing where they wear masks when they're sick, sort of to protect the the your friends, your colleagues. And um, initially in the COVID pandemic, we had much, much lower COVID rates in countries that traditionally have these masking routines. So uh, the problem is, again, sustainability and people get sick of uh, sort of having to mask at all times and uh, sort of social distancing and all. So how long we can sustain that has been a problem. And that's why we ended up in the situation we are today because we got tired of masks and um, we stopped masking. And again, I just really want to push the idea that we need to sustain the masking a little bit longer while we get our vaccination rates up to get rid of the situation we're in right now. And speaking of vaccination rates, are you pleased with the rates that we have now? I mean, I haven't looked at the data lately, but uh, it was well over 60% have received one. And I don't know what the number of that have received the two doses, but are you as a physician pleased or would you like to see that higher? We're very pleased at the recent uptick in vaccinations. Again, people I think are listening. They're seeing what's happening in schools. They're seeing what's happening in the workplace. And in the past month, we've had a, a very dramatic uh, sort of uptick in vaccination. Uh, it's a good start uh, in being in the 50 to 60% range, uh, but we have a long ways to go. I mean, people talk about herd immunity when we're reaching about 80% of vaccination coverage. Um, and of course, we have a large portion of our population that's not even eligible at this point, which are the 12 and unders. So we have a long way to go, but we're doing a pretty good job, I think. And uh, uh, we just, again, need to understand that this is not a punishment, not a, a, a sort of a, any sort of maneuver to control people, etc. It's one of the tools that's going to help us get out of the situation, which we are very tired of. And following to this uh, question, Dr. Ostrowski, uh, as we parents have to deal every uh, year to before go back to school, we need to send the list of the vaccines that our kids already got. So you think eventually COVID-19 vaccine, it will be part of that list and mandatory in every school? I think there's a future in which um, if the vaccines continue to be showing that they're efficacious and they're safe uh, in the pediatric population, eventually um, they may be recommended as normal childhood vaccinations. So again, nobody's doing that right now because we don't have that level of data. Um, but eventually if the data become available and they continue to prove their efficacy and their safety, it really wouldn't surprise me that they would be part of the normal childhood scheme of, of vaccinations. I have a follow-up. Uh, I'm sorry, Andrea. Uh, you know, Dr. Ostrowski, I remember uh, I traveled quite a bit as a young man. Obviously, I was born in Havana, Cuba, then went to Venezuela, and then came to the States, and I've been in the military. Uh, 
But I remember uh, probably maybe in the 60s or 70s, uh, my father traveled quite a bit as well, that some countries required immunization records before you were given a visa. Uh, I think, you know, in the modern era, that kind of stopped. I don't know why. Uh, and in the military, Dr. Ostrowski, uh, everyone in the military has to carry an immunization record, which, by the way, I still have. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I want to I want to remind people because there's this all this privacy issue, right, that, that my health care is my concern. Well, yes, it's true. And there's some legal arguments behind this that are going to be fascinating, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, is didn't countries in the past require immunization records before you were allowed to enter? Absolutely, and they still require them now. I mean, there's many, many countries that require proof of immunization against yellow fever uh, for traveling. In, this is today. You know, I I had to get my yellow fever vaccine two years ago when I was traveling somewhere in South America. Uh, there's countries that require proof of immunization for meningitis. If you're going to Mecca for a pilgrimage, you need your immunizations for meningitis. If you're going to certain countries in Asia, you need to have your immunizations for encephalitis, infections of the brain. So again, vaccines are not new. They're not controversial. Uh, requiring proof of vaccination to do things that are uh, unsafe for you if you're not vaccinated is not new. And um, gosh, I, I sort of <laughs> hear people saying that if, if we had polio now or we had um, any sort of like smallpox, we would all die because it, it's just become so political and so ideological when vaccines are safe and they help get people back to normal. Uh, Dr. Ostrowski, we have a question and is uh, when do you think the vaccine will be available for kids under 12? That's a very frequent question I get. Uh, Pfizer has announced that they're expecting to submit the under 12 data to the FDA for EUA analysis uh, by the end of September this month. Um, FDA is going to have to review it then and everybody's expecting an EUA for the under 12s towards um, November or December. And, and remind people EUA is emergency use authorization? Yes, emergency use authorization, which is uh, an authorization you get when you have enough data showing safety and efficacy in an emergency situation where you uh, don't need the full data set that you would normally request for full FDA approval, which has already happened for the adults uh, for the Pfizer vaccine. Okay. Well, uh, Andrea, do we have any more questions? Uh, because I want to make sure that we're respectful of Dr. Ostrowski's time. I know he's very busy at the Texas Medical Center, one of the largest medical centers in the world. Uh, we are, uh, Dr. Ostrowski, I can't thank you personally enough for taking an hour of your day to uh, share your your thoughts with, with uh, in a scientific way. Uh, about this this uh, pandemic. So, mil gracias. I don't know how we can ever repay you for your generosity. Uh, I, I know that we had tremendous positive comments last time you were on our Teleton Hall. People just loved you and your your calmness and your 
appeal to reason and your scientific background, which is, I think, what we need in this debate and in this 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 discussion. So, I personally want to thank you, uh, Andrea. If you don't have any more questions, maybe we ought to let Dr. Ostrowski go. So the next time we call him, he doesn't go. Oh my God, those people tie up my time. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ostrowski, muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate this opportunity to bring science to the discussion. Uh, again, um, our community is being disproportionately affected by COVID. Uh, more Hispanic people are getting COVID and, and dying and ending up in hospitals. And um, it's time, it's time to work together, follow the science and get out of this never ending cycle. So. Quiero decirle, doctor Ostrowski, que si quiere hacer un programa en español, una media hora o lo que sea, siempre estamos aquí disponibles sí. para que usted pueda compartir, porque este programa sale, como usted sabe, por el Internet mundial, pero mucha gente en el estado de Texas nos ven y, y si quiere eh, usted nos dice y hacemos un programa media hora, 20 minutos, lo que sea, completamente en español para la comunidad hispana que no entiende inglés. Perfecto. Doctor Ostrowski, eh, antes de que se vaya, quiero que hagamos un call to action y quiero que lo diga en inglés y en español, porque uh -huh. sí, la vacuna es súper importante, eh, cuidarnos, eh, protegernos con la máscara es súper importante, pero creo que hay algo también muy importante y es que debemos eh, prevenir y fortalecer nuestro sistema inmunológico para que estas personas que han fallecido porque ya tienen eh, condiciones preexistentes, eh, no ocurra esto, para que si nos da el COVID o nos da el flu, que no nos dé tan duro, precisamente porque nuestro sistema inmunológico está reforzado. So, I want to use the call to action, how to help ourselves and our kids and our family and to prevent uh, that uh, these kind of uh, infections or disease will get worse to us. Absolutely. So again, um, we need to focus really on a healthy lifestyle. Um, diet and exercise are very important. And beyond those, we need to, again, follow the science, follow the science that shows that masking, hand hygiene, social distancing and vaccination are things that are scientifically sound. They have proven to work and they're our only way out of this pandemic. ¿Y en español? Muy bien. Eh, realmente debemos de considerar que en estos momentos eh, esta epidemia está fuera de control. El fortalecer nuestro sistema inmune con una buena dieta, ejercicio, el cuidarnos con el lavado de manos, eh, el distanciamiento social, el uso de cubrebocas y sobre todo el vacunarnos va a ser la única forma que vamos a salir de esta pandemia. Nuevamente, estas son medidas basadas en ciencia, basadas en evidencia. Debemos de alejarnos de la política, de, de los rumores y debemos de seguir la ciencia si queremos salir de esto. Mil gracias, doctor Trotsky. Le damos la gracia a usted y a la Universidad de Texas por compartir parte de su día con nosotros. Así que Dios lo bendiga y los vemos pronto. Andrea. Muchísimas gracias, doctor, y definitivamente tenemos que hacer un programa completamente en español para nuestra comunidad hispana. Muchas gracias por su tiempo. Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Y bueno, Orlando, también tenemos que promover el nuestro super evento que viene el próximo octubre 2, October 2nd. We have 
a big event at TLC and Texas Latino Conservatives. Yes, Leadership Latino, October 2nd. So people, if you are in Rio Grande Valley, Rio Grande Valley, or you want to travel to Rio Grande Valley, we have a Leadership Latino, October 2nd. And we have all the information in our webpage and also in our Facebook page. So please go there, visit our page, uh, click on the link, register. It's completely free. It's completamente gratis. Y son muchas las cosas que vas a aprender. Esto va a empezar a las 2 de la tarde hasta las 8 de la noche, octubre 2, October 2nd, from 2 in the afternoon till 8 o'clock at night. And this is in Rio Grande Valley. And we're going to have another session in San Antonio that we're going to be, uh, we're going to announce it also, but for now it's October 2nd at Rio Grande Valley Leadership Latino. You can also visit leadershiplatino.com, leadershiplatino.com, or visit us in texaslatinoconservatives.com, and you're going to uh, get in the link also to go to the Leadership Latino and check all the information and all the benefits that you're going to get from this event. So, you know, what's exciting, Andrea, is that uh, that photo that Mark had up of uh, that was our class up in the Dallas area. And uh, one of the things Leadership Latino is where we train young conservatives on how to become leaders in the conservative movement. And uh, well, that's what if you want to be a precinct chair, if you want to be a fundraiser, if you want to be a campaign manager or if you want to be a candidate for office. And what's exciting is that some of the young people that we trained a year and a half, two years ago, are now coming back to teach the class. And in fact, one of the exciting things is that one of our students of Leadership Latino down in Harlingen back in 2019 is now a rock star as a candidate for the U.S. Congress. And she will be stopping by to talk to the class in Harlingen. So we're excited about our Leadership Latino classes across the state of Texas. As Andrea says, October 2nd down in Harlingen, Texas, just sign up. It's completely free. You're going to meet a lot of friends. Some of our uh, students, you know, gather the information and move on and just become informed citizens. But many of our students become rock stars as candidates and campaign managers and are getting real active in Texas conservative politics. And we're so proud of y'all and we're so proud of the efforts and the time that you invest in helping lead Texas into the future. Texas is a great state. It's a diverse state. Uh, we have several ethnicities. Uh, as we know, the Hispanic population is huge in the state of Texas. And we, our mission is to keep Texas conservative. Uh, to follow a constitution, to follow free markets, to pursue liberty and the rights of individuals under a constitutional type of government. So if those things sound interesting to you and you want to participate as a leader, join us down in South Texas, in Harlingen, Texas, October 2nd, or keep an eye on our webpage for our San Antonio Bear County event. And we will be moving across the state of Texas. So we will also be down uh at in El Paso pretty soon so all of this is on our website so make sure that you sign up if you're interested and Andrea I will see you in uh studio next week Awesome. And uh, please not only um, go to visit the webpage, but also become a member of Texas Latino Conservatives. Become a member is only $35 and help us to help. Nos vemos el próximo miércoles, Orlando. Chao, chao.